and for our fellowship today in the preaching of the word. So please join me. Our God and our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are so great, you're so different. There's no God but you. You're the only true God. I just pray, God, that we would be people of reverence, people who stand in awe at your word, that my heart, God, would be a heart that stands in awe of your word, that we would not just be people who take things, who merely just take things seriously, but who do, if we do take things seriously, do it because we fear your name because we actually see how great you are. We actually see how amazing you are. We actually see how awesome you are. How you are a heart stopper by your glory. How you make the heart and the hands and the knees shake by the greatness of your glory. Holy God, I just pray that you touch each person's heart because if you don't touch our hearts, Lord, The preaching is in vain. The teaching is in vain. The singing is in vain. The fellowship is in vain. Everything we do, every time we gather, it is absolutely meaningless. And we would only be people, if we even think to make meaning out of it, we would only be people who are forcing a false meaning into our fellowship. God, provide your meaning to our fellowship. Provide your purpose in our fellowship today. Provide strength to our hearts today, God, and let the word that comes come with boldness and clarity and truth for the sake of your great name and for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who gave his life for us. I pray you'd guide me in the sermon today that all the strength that is necessary you'd provide to me and that the word would really touch the hearts of those who hear and even my own more and more. I pray, God, that you would be with us in everything. We thank you for this time. We thank you for all that you've done. Through your son, Jesus, alone, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Um, So if you guys do not have your Bible, I think I said this last week too. Please get it. Um, We're going to be looking at the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. And the title of today's sermon is The Blessing in Believing. The Blessing in Believing. So the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. Okay, it says this. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I'll actually stop there and just ask a question. And the question is, what is the world that, what is the hope, sorry, that this world can provide? I keep bringing this up. I I think I spent the last two sermons that I had the opportunity to uh, share the Word of God um, talking about that, talking about hope, talking about what we set our hearts on, talking about the future, talking about what we look forward to. I think that's a really important thing to address. I think that's really something that we need to think about and actually be self-aware about. conscious about as people 
we need to think about what we are looking forward to. What we will actually give our lives for completely with good reason. And I mean, to answer the question, the hope that the world can provide is in major categories, money, right? Apparently, you get less problems if you have more money. Friends, you're apparently less lonely. Marriage, you apparently feel love more. And then good health, apparently all that is necessary for a long life. Right. These four things are generally what you'll hear um, as being the hope that you can have in this world. But with each of these longings, what seems to come with and what seems to come with them, there's always this exception. If it's money, right, it's not necessarily going to satisfy your heart. It's not necessarily going to even deliver you from all the problems in the world. Actually, what seems to happen is your problems get more specific. They actually turn from what is necessary to like things that are unnecessary. From food, clothing, shelter to like, how do I make this automated? Right? Um, it comes to friends, there are other things you could um, personally probably testify to about how that doesn't necessarily make you feel more whole or more complete. And there are actually some celebrities or famous people that could serve as an example to how there's always an exception to these things. Some of you guys might have heard of Robin Williams. Um, if not, maybe younger, your younger crowd, maybe he wasn't a big guy when you guys were um, growing up. But he was a comedian and an actor um, who committed suicide. Right? He had a net worth of over a million dollars, right? And he committed suicide by hanging himself. And this next one, Kim Kardashian, I mean, everybody knows her. Nicolas Cage as well. Um, these are actors and celebrities who have been married three times or more. Right. And, and uh, there could probably be more categories to mention uh, in today's sermon. But just with these major ones, I want us to actually... Um, you know, have our discussion. So there's always an exception in the hope that the world is providing to us. But with the hope that God is providing to us, we are actually stable. We're actually secure. And there's actually something we can set ourselves on completely. That said, um, I want to kind of give the scripture that we just read some context. Um, starting in chapter 3. So there's a man named Nicodemus, right? He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus at night, probably on his own accord or on behalf of some other respectable men, um, wondering what Jesus' appearance might mean. Right? That is how people thought back then, is when they saw somebody bold, zealous, courageous, they asked themselves, what could this mean? Right? When they saw John the Baptist, for example, the first thing that they, they asked him is, are you the Christ? Questions came up when somebody was performing signs, somebody was working miracles, somebody was teaching with authority. And we can see that in the previous chapters um, of this book. When Jesus cleansed the temple in chapter 2, right? during the Passover, or when the Passover was at hand. I mean, that's a very bold move. You have to be a righteous person to even think, to go in the midst of the temple where the rulers of the Jews are, where the leading men are dwelling, and to actually decide, I'm going to flip this place upside down, because, not just because I want to, because there's actually wickedness occurring. People are turning my father's house into a house of trade, right? a, a place for gain, essentially. And so it, it's no surprise that Nicodemus 
Um, and perhaps some of the other men who spoke with Nicodemus before he came to Christ thought it a good idea to come to Christ and ask him some questions. What could this mean? Jesus's appearance, right? And Christ, because of how serious his message is, because of how weighty it is, and maybe because of how infrequent his meetings with Nicodemus might be, because he's a Pharisee and is a dishonorable among them, to perhaps be with Jesus, he goes straight to the fundamental, a fundamental point of his teaching, right? Which concerns the necessity of being given a new heart and a new mind by the working of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God and understand his doctrine. So Nicodemus in his, uh, in his unbelief asked that question, which we've all heard, how can this be? Right? How is this even possible? And Christ establishes the authority of his doctrine. And beyond that, um, actually speaks pretty boldly to Nicodemus, right? He says, like, uh, in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Right? If I've told you things in a way that you can understand, Nicodemus, with earthly elements in the picture, with human birth in the picture, how are you even going to understand things that you can only get when you have the Holy Spirit of God in you? And in this context, we see what we see in verse 16 through 21. Right? And there's debate among interpreters um, about whether 16 through 21 is Jesus himself speaking or whether it's a commentary from the gospel writer himself. Um, but nevertheless, um, the truth of these verses comes out of this setting. And so I, I want us to consider that. So what, what can we really take from this passage, right? Before we dive into our sermon, what can we really take from John 16, or John 3, verse 16 through 18? Whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, in other words, the doctrine of salvation coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, which centers itself back on him because he is the way of salvation, will not perish, but will have eternal life, which is blessed by God, or the eternal life, which is blessed by God. That's what we can take from this. And there are two things that I want to break down within this sermon in that idea. And it comes from verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. That's the first thing. But have eternal life. It's a twofold blessing. I sound charismatic a little bit, right? Using those, those words. I've kept, I kept using them. I used it last week. Uh, maybe I'll keep using it. The first one is escaping from the wrath of God. If we trust in Christ, we're going to escape from the wrath of God. And the second one is participating in the eternal life which is given by God. Let's talk about the first one, escaping the wrath of God. All over the New Testament and Old Testament revelation of God is the truth concerning His wrath. Right? In other words, how God in His hatred for evil responds to evil. Right? God is not just this God, I, I've mentioned this before, with a disposition that's just angry and furious and full of bitterness or jealousy or some kind of strange um, character. Right? God's initial disposition toward all men is one of goodwill. I keep saying that. He wants what's best for us. He wants the best for each of His creatures. And so, even, even 
even animals to a degree, not necessarily in the same way with human beings, definitely not, but <laughs> even with those creatures which he's created for his own purpose. But God nevertheless has a hatred for evil. He hates evil. He hates sin. And he will respond to sin in what the Bible calls his wrath. And I want to see a really good illustration of this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. And if you go there, you, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to skim at certain points of the chapter that will um, really help us to get this idea of wrath and what it means for God's wrath to kind of pass over from us in Christ. So in chapter 16, I'm, I'm going to just again kind of scan through the points of this passage. Um, and the first thing to consider is that God is speaking to Israel, right? His covenant people. If you look at verse 1, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 2, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Right? God is speaking to Israel, his covenant people, about their unfaithfulness uh, to him, which is expressed in idolatry and disobedience. You see that in verse 15, where he says, But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby or passerby, your beauty became his. Verse 17 through 18. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given to you, and made for yourselves, made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and bread, oh sorry, and set my oil and my incense before them, before idols, before objects that these people, the covenant people of God, made with the very gold and jewelry that God himself had given to them. Right? He's speaking to his people about their unfaithfulness. These people did not remember the days of old when they were despised and disregarded. And God cleaned them, fed them, made them beautiful, and gave them children. They did not consider the kindness of God. They turned, like the way that Scripture speaks sometimes about this is they turned their shoulder or they turned their backs or they stiffened their foreheads, right? They weren't willing to remember. They weren't willing to, willing to recognize the kindness of God to them, the compassion of God for them. And in verse 35, uh, verse 35 to verse 36, this is also made clear. It says, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. And it goes on and it goes on. But this speaks about the ungodliness of the people. They forgot the kindness of God. As Romans 1, 21-23 says, as Paul in that passage says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Their hearts were blind. They couldn't even see the goodness of God. They couldn't even be mindful for a second about how God had been so gracious to them in the past. And that's what we remember. We remember the past. And we remember what God has done for us in the past. 
and even what he will do for us in the future, but in this context, the past. And for this reason, which is just, I don't think anybody would disagree, God is going to repay them in his righteous wrath. You see that in verse 37 to 41. I'm just going to pull out a, a few points from this. <clears throat> or actually, I'm just going to read through it. It says, Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords and they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. And he goes on to say, I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. Right. God is a God of wrath. We need to get that. Did I just make this up myself? Like, this is God's word to us as men and women. God's wrath is serious. And none of us want to experience it. The New Testament revelation also makes clear that God will take vengeance upon the rebellion of men at the return of Jesus Christ, right? And that in their final judgment, right, in the judgment that God will pronounce through Jesus Christ, He will make them pay for their offenses eternally in the place of torment, which is the lake of fire. <clears throat> and there are a few passages that point to that I'm just going to read, right, which we might be familiar with. Where Jesus says in the book of Matthew 25, verse 41, he says, concerning the sheep and the goats, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, Paul makes a few key points that I want to mention that Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire in flaming fire, and inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Right? These people, as Paul says, and I quote, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Jude also says the same thing when he talks about the prophetic word from Enoch. He says, Behold, the Lord will comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. And then lastly, when it comes to this reality of God's wrath, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 through 14, concerning really just about the end of all things before the new creation and the new Jerusalem and the measurements of that wonderful place that God is going to give to us. The, the, the John says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And it actually goes on in verse 15, I don't have it noted here, to say, And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life 
was thrown into the lake of fire. So the wrath of God is something very serious. In the Old Testament, it was particularly displayed in earthly judgments. Your children would be taken, slaughtered, and just things that as a human being you don't even want to experience on this side, right? Before eternity. Nobody here wants to be cut up in pieces. Nobody here wants to suffer physically, just to put it short. Nobody here wants to be ashamed. You want to be embarrassed? You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't even want to stand here and be embarrassed. You don't want to stand right where I'm at right now and somehow find a way to embarrass yourself. There's so much weight that will come on your own head. From that, what about... I mean, what about when God does the things we've just read in Ezekiel? What about when princes are no longer honored and the elders are treated with shame and disrespect? What about when young men are weak? None of us want that. We want strong princes. We're not Israelites, but I think the point is clear. We want strong leadership, strong elders, strong young men. So the wrath of God is very serious. And we need to actually tremble at the reality that God is going to display His wrath. We need to be people who really, our hearts, when we think about the judgments of God, we actually just run from sin. We actually just run from those things that would dishonor God. It's not only His wrath that we consider. We consider His kindness. We consider His love. It empowers us. It encourages us. It reminds us. It doesn't just make us do things by force like a cruel leader or something like that. But nevertheless, the severity of God is something that needs to really grip us and um, dictate how we kind of step in life. But that's not the only thing we um, participate in or the only blessing that we can find in this passage um, of Scripture. We don't only escape the wrath of God, right, which will come upon the godless, but we also get to rejoice in the blessed life that God will give to those who believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. God will satisfy the desire, or He will satisfy desire completely and provide eternal comfort and rest from the effects of sin in this world. You know how how much sin affects the way we live with one another? How much sin affects the way we deal with one another? It makes us impatient. It makes us people who are so self-centered and so selfish, and we would actually, for money or for some kind of gain, hurt one another. We would set one another up. Literally, we would set one another up to fall. And you would experience some of those things that we kind of talked about in Ezekiel. Some of the earthly sufferings from just sin, right? In us. Your people at your job, they hate you. They despise you. They put you in a tight place where you're going to have to make a choice of whether you want to honor God or lose your job. That's what sin does. That's what evil within the heart of mankind does. I mean, you think of Daniel, who 
a godly, a righteous, dignified man who feared God, who loved God, who prayed to God with a sincere heart. And those men who set him up, they literally plotted so that Daniel would have to make a choice. They knew his commitment to God. They knew his commitment to his prayer time. And still, because of sin, they set him up so that if anybody prayed to anybody but the king or invoked any other name but the name of the king, that person should suffer. So, the effects of sin in this life, God will provide deliverance from. He'll provide eternal comfort. He'll provide satisfaction to our hearts. How is God doing this, though? Right? I mean, if you ask us, we're among the number of people with sick hearts. We're among those whose hearts are wicked, whose hearts are cruel, whose hearts need to be cleansed and purified. How is God going to <clears throat> do this for us? Well, God is doing it through His Son, Jesus. His appointed mediator who is lifted up on a cross as our substitute and as our Savior. Jesus was given up on the cross for our sins. And there are a few passages um, I want to refer to. Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, you just be patient with me. Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 6. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was our substitute. The chastisement that we deserve as verse 5 says, was put on Him. John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gave up his body for us and come into the point where we said how God is doing this through his son we see in Romans chapter 8 verse 32 where the scripture says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things God did not spare his son Jesus Christ on the cross. Even when Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was God's commitment to us in His mercy. That was God falling through with His plan of salvation. He did not spare Jesus, His Son at the cross. He did not spare Jesus, His Son, when He was spit on, when He was mocked, when He was treated so shamefully. God did not spare His own Son. But He gave us, He gave Him up for us all. And then, um, one of the last passages I want to just look at. In First Peter, that point to the price that was paid. Verse 17 through 19. It says, And if you call on Him 
as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver. When you go to jail, you pay a uh, what? Like some kind of fee to bail somebody out, right? You pay with money, right? U.S. dollars. Check or credit card or the debit card. You pay with earthly currency. But the way that we were ransomed for our sin or from our sin and its consequences is what verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Sinless man took on the sin of man so that we could have His righteousness and the reward that belongs to that righteousness, eternal life. So again, we don't only escape the wrath of God, but God in His mercy and in His kindness is going to bless us with eternal life and with the blessings of that life. There are so many blessings that are going to come with eternal life that it would actually cause you, as Isaiah says, to forget the current world we're in right now, to actually look at the current world that we're living in right now and actually not even remember anything. You're not going to have Alzheimer's or something like that. You're going to literally forget because of the glory of the new heaven and the new earth, the likeness of this creation. We're looking forward to this, right? We're looking forward to not only being passed over as it regards the wrath of God, but also being redeemed, given new bodies, given a new life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And isn't this just a reason to praise God? Isn't this a reason to praise Christ? to come with worship. When God does good things to us, we should respond with thanksgiving. And even when our lives seem troublesome, yes, we do with, respond with thanksgiving, but especially in those times where God has shown us kindness, where God has shown us His grace and compassion, when He did not have to consider us and He chose to consider us. When He did not have to give up His Son, but in His counsel from eternity, decided to give up His Son. He had compassion on us. And these, this is a reason to give praise. So how do we respond besides that? Um, well, honestly, really in line with that, how do we respond to this? Let's look at the book of Hebrews. And in chapter, chapter 12, to see how we should respond. Chapter 12, verse 28 through 29. I've read a lot of passages, guys, so if you can, just turn to this one at least. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 to 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 to 29. It says, therefore, let us be grateful 
for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We respond with reverential obedience and awe and thanksgiving. That is our that is going to be a part of our acceptable worship to God. That is going to be a part of the life that we devote to God in Christ. It's going to be one with reverence. It's going to be one with awe in its obedience. That's how we respond. And on top of that, we seek to be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ um, in 1 John In chapter I think it's chapter three. Well, I can't find the quote, but it goes something like this. This is a paraphrase of the text. Whoever hopes in him thus purifies himself as he is pure. Right? If we're waiting for the gift of God that is coming in Christ, our response is to be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. What if we haven't believed in Jesus? Right? as the only Son of God, the one to be recognized as the sovereign Lord over all things and Savior from the wrath to come. What if we haven't recognized Jesus as being these things to us? We need to repent of our unbelief and we need to receive the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ. We need to come to God and we need to confess our unbelief. And we need to turn away from that unbelief and believe. If we believe, we'll have this grace, right? We'll miss the wrath of God. None of us want to see. You don't even want to see me angry. You don't want to see like somebody, I'm not a tough guy or something, you just don't want to see me angry, like you don't want to see like anybody in here angry, especially within the fellowship of the church. It would defile, it would make you like um, insecure coming forward, going forward. Make you even tense on your toes or something like that. Unless I was angry for a good reason, like nobody here would be glad about that. Right? Unless I was like furious about sin, or something like that. Nobody would be accepting. <clears throat> even human anger. Right? It might even scare people. What about the wrath of God? What about God's fury? What about when God comes? <laughs> in judgment through Christ. What about then? But again, it's more than that. It's, it's having the life. Right? It's also having the life that is going to be blessed by God. That is going to be full of grace. You might have, you might not have it here. On this temporary life, you might not have the most fortunate circumstances. I mean, we just sang a part of that song was, um, I think, suffering and harm. This is what comes with believing in Christ. This is just paraphrasing the song. We may not have it. In, on this side if we're faithful 
but for sure, with absolute assurance, in the next life, when Christ returns or when we die, we're going to receive the mercy of God, which gives us eternal life. So that is the um, word I wanted to share today. I want us to think about. Um, I want us to pray about. There's a blessing in believing in Jesus, <clears throat> the only Son of God. There's a blessing in believing Him and His doctrine and His teaching. That's what it is to believe in the Lord, is to trust what He says and to obey and honor what He says. There's an expression of that. So I, I just I want us to pray. Um, those of you guys who are talking there, I want you guys to pray as well. Um, to really consider the word that I'm talking to Naomi and the other sister Maharit. <clears throat> I want you guys to pray about these things as well. I want each of us to consider the seriousness of this. The weightiness of this. And how much of a blessing it is. So let's pray together <coughs> as we close. God, I just pray that you help us sinful people, broken people, greedy people, self-centered people, conceited people, impatient people. Help us. Because as we read and as we know, we ourselves, God, are people who belong on the side of your wrath. We belong on the end where we experience your judgment. We belong on the end where we face all sorts of misfortune. According to your word, God, we belong there because we're sinners. We are offenders of your name. We are your enemies apart from Christ. But through Jesus Christ, you have given us hope. You have given us rest. You have given us comfort to look forward to. And even now, in part, to rejoice in. And we just thank you, God. We just thank you. Because as your word has said, you have given us an unshakable kingdom. This earth and this heaven, it will shake. But the new heaven and the new earth, it will never be destroyed. It will be eternal. There will be no need for a second redemption or something like this, God. There will not be a second fall in the new creation. It will be an eternal joy, an eternal salvation that you do not turn back from, oh God. And we just thank you for this. We pray, God, that our names, according to your word, are found in that book of life, which is the Lord's book. Those cleansed, those washed, those covered under the protection of his death on their behalf. Under the protection of the, his suffering on their behalf. His substitution on their behalf, that we would be there as people, each one of us, that there would not be a single soul in here, oh God, according to your mercy, that would miss out on that life, and that your kindness, God, would be over our fellowship, so that we would have the fear of your name, 
so that we would come into the fellowship of the saints, wherever it may be, with trembling on our hearts. Being people who revere you, who fear you. Who can perform this thing? Who can work within the hearts of your, your people? Who? Who, God, who? If it's not you, <clears throat> if it's not by the work of your Holy Spirit, who? Who's going to touch us and change us? So God, let the fear of your name, let thankfulness for your compassion, let an awareness of your love cover us. Let us be filled with it by your Spirit's help. We know that you alone can do this, and we just praise you. We thank you. We acknowledge what you've done through the Lord Jesus Christ, how you gave him up for our sins, how you had him on the cross suffering under your wrathful hand for us to have peace with you, for your anger to be satisfied, for your wrath to be satisfied, You gave up your son, and he suffered for us. In reverence, we bow our heads, and we thank you for your kindness. We do this through Jesus Christ the Lord. Please help us, God. Amen. Amen.